Hey everybody, this is Jeremy Lynch and Landon Harlan from Obu Interactive, and you are listening to the Cases for Causes podcast, the show that looks at legal marketing with a purpose. Today we'll be talking about sexual assault with Jessica Pride, the managing partner of the Pride Law Firm. From sexual assault response team advocate and friend to aggressive trial lawyer, for more than 15 years, she has been the lead attorney on behalf of women, men, and children who have been sexually assaulted. Jessica is a co-founding chair of the American Association for Justice's Sexual Assault Litigation Group and a standing member of the Board of Governors since 2014. The Pride Law Firm was the first law firm in the state of California to employ a full-time survivor advocate to ensure her clients receive the attention and support required after an assault. All right. Thank you, Jeremy. Jessica Pride has been working with Obu for more than 10 years now. Seeing, yeah, everything from, um, we've seen a lot of different cases come your way that have been local, uh, even as in San Diego, and you are co-counseled and people have contacted you from around the country seeking help. One of your latest cases, I understand, just recently settled in June of 2022. You were preparing for trial for that one. It was against a psychiatric ward, which uh, you've enlightened me to understand is something where there's a very high probability for someone who's been admitted to be sexual assaulted, and you didn't uh, play any games. You took 42 depositions, and then that case settled right before trial. So, Jessica, there's over 1.3 million active lawyers in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit more about your path to helping victims of sexual assault, abuse, and harassment? Yeah, thank you, Landon and Jeremy. So happy to be here today. And thank you for going on this journey with me. I know over 10 years ago when uh, we were both younger in our career, I'd like to think I look the same, but... um, (laughs) I you know, said, hey, do you want to help me build a site so that we can help survivors? And your team was amazing, came together and really tried to understand how representing survivors of sexual assault is different than any other PI case because it requires a different level of detail and care and what I'd like to call kind of white glove treatment uh, with a survivor, making sure that you're giving them trauma-informed care so you're not doing more harm. By triggering them, you're actually helping them, stabilizing them, and helping them get justice. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because we're going to cover a few tips of advice that you would give someone if they come across this podcast on your website, which they most likely will, but some advice to give them in addition to content that they can read. But I do want to start with something that I think is used interchangeably and could have a little bit of better foundation. Can you tell us in your own words the difference between what a victim is what a survivor is. You've chosen survivor and it, it seems to fit very well with a lot of your clientele, but can you give us your opinion on that? Yeah, there, there's a lot of debate about the difference of what do you call someone who's been uh, sexually assaulted or abused? Are they labeled as a survivor or are they labeled as a victim? I think it's whatever survivor resonates with. That's the term that they should choose. However, you know, historically, you know, the court system labels them as a victim or you've got society calling someone a victim. And there was some pushback because 
the term victim seems to connotate that they're somehow weak. You know, something bad happened to them, that there is some stigma related with the word. And so we felt strongly, and I feel that, I mean, I like the word survivor um, because it seems to connotate that you endured, you stood up. You took your power back. And what we do here at the Pride Law Firm is to help survivors get justice in civil court, but we help them get their power back by saying, this is not okay. I'm going to hold you accountable in court. And, and we realize that justice comes in so many forms. It could be in civil court. It could be in criminal court. It could be, you know, healing all different ways. But in choosing to do something, to stand up and make that transition, I like the word survivor. And here, everyone at the firm, we all have our own stories. We feel like we really have endured. We continue to fight on you know, our own healing journeys, but on behalf of survivors um, for their um, pursuit of justice. So survivor is what resonates with me, but I also appreciate that anyone, however they identify, whatever they'd like to call themselves, it is their story to tell and it is their truth, but we can only hope that we can be a piece on their healing journey. Another thing I would say about the whole part of Survivor is that sexual violence is about power. It's the difference between a power dynamic. Someone takes your power away in a sense because they do something to you without your consent and you didn't get a choice. You didn't get to choose to be raped. No one would pick that, you know, and what you do get to choose is what you do with it. You know, am I going to choose yeah. to heal? Am I going to choose to take the next day? Cause every day is one day at a time, but am I going to choose to say, no, this is not okay with me. I'm not going to let it stand. I'm going to make sure that this predator is held accountable. And whether he goes to jail, has to pay for you know my pain and suffering and my medical bills, I choose. I choose what I want. And so I love that. And I love being able to be part of a survivor's journey when they make that choice. That choice to say, I'm taking my power back. I'm going to choose to heal in this fashion. And this is one part of my healing journey. So that's all we can hope for here at the Pride Law Firm is to help survivors heal. We really believe that our mission here is to help end sexual violence. It's not just what the work we do in, in civil court. As you know, Lena, and I'm sure I, I'm president of the board of our local rape crisis center. I've held that title for six years. That's a fully volunteer position that I dedicate. Uh, God, sometimes it's 20 hours a week. Sometimes it's five hours a week. But I try to give as much time as I can to the community, making sure that you know our greater community, not just my clients, have access to counseling and safe housing in the event that they're fleeing violence. Right. But then I went on and decided, well, how can I help other lawyers? Because I realize I'm one woman and I can't help. I'd love to help everybody across the United States. I can't do it. So I try to encourage trial lawyers across the country to one, do this work. And if you're going to do it, do it in a trauma-informed way. So that's why we started the litigation group to provide lawyer resources so that they can help survivors. And then my latest venture now is opening up a healing center 
for sexual assault survivors. Serona um, Healing Center will be a first of its kind in San Diego. I'm so excited about that. I'm like snaps to me and to our team for doing an amazing job in bringing the first of its kind. It's a healing center only for sexual assault survivors to go and heal. So imagine kind of a Betty Ford made it met a uh, kind of like a healing wellness center and all of our therapists are going to be trauma informed. We're going to, whether, whatever your manifestation of your trauma is, a lot of people, we find 80% of people who are sexually abused, their trauma manifests either in eating disorders, drug or alcohol addiction, cutting, things like that. And so they often go to therapists or providers to get that care but they're not dealing with the root cause. And at Serona, we're going to help to treat people to get to the root cause. So hopefully they can live healthy, happy lives. It's very enlightening. I've seen that in your journey. And one of the things that I've noticed is that, you know, we've worked with hundreds of lawyers and we've met dozens of attorneys who also claim to be advocates and represent victims of sexual assault and help them to be survivors. But I think there is uh, a large number out there that don't take the time to understand the trauma, do not take the time to truly learn about the subject matter. And they'll just say that they represent victims of sexual assault. And it's such a significant difference from someone like yourself, who has immersed your entire firm, your whole staff, your, you know, your team that that really focus on it. So it makes quite a huge difference. For someone that's listening, what would you say would be your immediate advice if they've you know, been a victim of sexual assault? What is it that they should do? I would, one, realize this is a confusing time. And the body, when you're in shock, you're going, did this really just happen to me? Is this my fault? what's going on? What do I do? Realize that that feeling is normal. So there are a couple things that I would advise you to do. One, preserve the evidence. Don't take a shower. Don't pee. Don't brush your teeth and collect your clothing. Uh, Most survivors, the first thing they want to do is wash away the memory and clean themselves because they feel gross and disgusting. And so they get in the shower, they brush their teeth, they wash the sheets, they delete the text messages. So I would say the first thing is, is don't do that. Preserve it all. Maybe you don't want to have a suit. Maybe you don't want to go to the police. Maybe, but save it in case, you know, in a couple days you decide you do want to do something, do not delete all the text messages or the evidence. Uh, If you are going to get a SART exam, which is the exam where they go and they collect evidence off of your body, then you will need to do it. The the sooner in time after the assault, the better, especially if you think that you were uh, drugged as your body metabolizes the drugs or the alcohol, you are losing evidence by the minute. So trying to get to the hospital as soon as possible. And actually about that, in California, most people think, and especially San Diego, that you go straight to a hospital and they're gonna do your SART exam there at the hospital. Not true. The exams are actually done in special centers that specialize in SART examinations. And so the best thing to do is actually stay home. 
Stay home and call the police. Call the police, let them know what has happened to you, and they will either escort you or they will tell you where to go because it is a, uh, a special location, different on every county, and go straight to the SART Center. Take your clothes, take all the evidence, you know, if you have to pee, I mean, that's kind of one of those interesting things, right? Does everyone have a sterile cup at home? Probably not to pee in and take with you. But just try and minimize how much food and liquids you're drinking because you're helping your body metabolize. And so you're not going to get an accurate count on um, if you were drugged. Right. So it sounds like the most important thing for someone to do in terms of the preservation of evidence is whatever may be there, like you said, from text messages to clothing, uh, calling the police is really a big first step. Definitely. And sometimes that's a really hard step because people think I call 911. This is scary. I've never called 911 and they're really frightened. So yeah. I think the second thing would be is, you know, or simultaneously is surround yourself by someone who loves you and cares for you, who's going to be a support system for you, someone who's going to reassure you that it, it's not your fault. If you're not sure if you've been sexually assaulted, you know, you can call your local rape crisis center. They have hotlines that pick up 24 hours a day, seven days a week and ask them. You can call someone like me and my team and we'd be happy to talk to you. Um, all consultations are free. So don't worry about having to pay a legal fee just because you call to find out. And then, you know, Take that support person with you to the SART Center if you choose to do that. Um, make sure you take some clothing, a change of clothing, because they will take your clothing from you. So, and then after all of those things, heal. The biggest thing is to be kind to yourself and to give yourself some self-care, whether that's counseling, whether that's meditation, a walk, going for a run, yoga, over the next days, weeks, years, uh, your body has to process that trauma. And so what tools are you giving yourself to help do that? And as you're going through your everyday life and realizing like, I'm really anxious or I'm more volatile and, and sensitive than normal, don't beat yourself up about that. Go, okay, this is part of it. I got it. Okay, I need to ground myself. I need to do something for me. If anything, and above all, you need love. You need to love yourself yeah. more than anything during these times because it's hard. It's super hard. Hey, Jess, I got a question for you yeah. after what you just said. Where does your survivor advocate team fall into play. You just said you need to heal. So there's going to be people out there who have survived something like this. And part of the healing process is getting comfortable with even speaking about what happened. So how quickly is there, a, is there a time frame that they need to kind of keep in mind when they're ready or thinking about reaching out to uh, someone like you and, and your firm? That's a good question. And it's different for everyone. We know that there are people who were molested as children and it took them 20 years to come forward. And in California right now, we have this look back window that closes actually at the end of this year where you can uh, go back 50 years and bring a suit against your predator or the school or whoever was responsible uh, for that. 
it's different for everyone, you know, and, and we can't force a survivor to do something when they're not ready. I would never encourage that. You have to heal on your own timeline. You know, as civil lawyers, we just want people to be aware that there unfortunately are deadlines in civil court that kind of dictate you only have so much time. So you've got till the end of this year if it goes back 50 years. But then generally speaking, you got three years in California and it's different around the country. But California got three years from the date you were assaulted to bring a, a civil suit. If it involves some type of medical malpractice, like a doctor was the one who hurt you or if you got hurt in a psychiatric facility, then sometimes it's one year. But the best thing to do if you don't know what that time frame looks like is to call a lawyer and, and to get some legal advice. You also brought up a really good question. You said, who's answering the phone here at the firm? I feel strongly that when you talk to someone at my firm, you need to talk to someone who is trauma-informed. And so our victim advocates, uh, our survivor advocates, um, however you would like to call them, they are the ones who do our intakes at the office. Our survivor advocates have gone through the 62-hour um, crisis intervention training. Um, they have a lot of experience in talking to survivors. Uh, so we want you to talk to somebody that you know survivors feel comfortable talking to, um, who can tell them not only kind of get some information about what happened, but also talk to them about resources. We always want to make sure that our clients have healing resources. And so we have a whole list of providers around the state that can help you. We also have free resources up on our website under the self-care tab. So we realize that when people are in an immediate crisis, what we need to do is stabilize them. They could care less about a civil case if they're worried about being able to go to work and make rent this month, but because they spent the money on counseling now, they can't afford that. Or they've got children who need them, but they can't even fill their own cup so that they can take care of them. So we really try to help stabilize a survivor, get them to a place where they're getting resources so then we can even get to that talk about a civil case. And I always try to tell my clients, you know what? You focus on healing. Give me your legal woes. And I don't want you to worry about that. I'm going to take care of your legal case. You focus on healing and together we're going to get there. What are some of the benefits that come from working with a, law a lawyer like yourself or a firm like yours? Does the assailant or the perpetrator go to jail longer or how, how can you explain how that works? Yeah, that's a really good question because most people don't understand the difference between the civil system and the criminal system. So with the criminal court system, the objective is to send the predator to jail. The people who are in charge of that are the district attorney's office and the police department. So then the other end is civil court. Um, the objective in civil court is to get a survivor money for pain and suffering, medical bills, lost wages, things like that. Now, I'm a civil lawyer. If a survivor would like their perpetrator to go to jail, then they need to call the police department, file a report. They would then send it to the district attorney's office, and then the district attorney would make a decision whether or not they're going to prosecute the criminal or uh, perpetrator and try and put them in jail, make them register as a sex offender, things like that. I don't have any control over that. 
I usually represent my clients and I will help them in their criminal case or go you know, through it with them because in a criminal case, it's the people versus the predator. And the district attorney represents the people, not the survivor. The survivor's the star witness, but their interests, they cannot take the survivor's interests as their paramount concern. So things like sometimes we see in criminal cases, and I know I'm going off on a tangent, but we see uh, our clients' psych records or school records subpoenaed by the criminal defense attorney. We actually jump in at that point and say, no, no, no. And we'll fight to keep our clients' privacy and things out so that they're not trying to uh, vilify or trying to make the survivor look bad in order to help um, get a defense for the for the criminal. Now, the civil side, what, what people don't realize is that the majority of cases, uh, the prosecution rate, depending on where you're at around the country, it's two to five percent, two to five percent. That means most predators are not going to jail. I think part of the problem is, is not because we don't have great detectives out there or prosecutors who want to prosecute these cases. It's because in criminal court, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, all 12 jurors have to say guilty in order for that person to go to jail. In civil court, we're more likely than not 50 and a feather. So in cases with sexual assault, well, a lot of times 80%, it's somebody, you know, so, you know, you're home alone with them or you're in a, a school classroom or something. There aren't cameras recording usually. There is no you know, audio or video recording. It's two people in a room and often what we'd call uh, he said, she said type of uh, liability, what we're looking at. Well, because of the burden of proof being lighter, text messages, all kinds of other persuasive evidence are, I mean, they come in and are really helpful. And has created a really amazing success rate in civil court. So most survivors can opt to do a criminal. Well, they don't get to, they can file it and hope that the government is going to file charges. They can do a civil case at the same time. They can do both. They can do none. They get to choose. But what we often see with our clients is the majority of our clients don't have criminal prosecutions and we're able to get them justice in civil court. So civil court, in my opinion, is a way for survivors, for more survivors to get justice against their predators. And the justice we like to see is not just monetary justice, meaning getting a survivor money for pain and suffering, medical bills, lost wages, but also we like to create institutional change. So we like to see a school, for example, we just settled a case with a school that whose teacher abused uh, several of my clients. And in the settlement agreement, we said, hey, it's not enough that you're going to pay these survivors for what they went through. We want to make sure that no other child at that school gets hurt. And so because of that, you need to hire an independent consultant. You need to change your policies and procedures. You need to put things in place to make sure that no other child gets hurt. You got to keep kids safe. And so for my clients, for me, it's really important for there to be non-monetary changes in settlements whenever it's possible, because we really do want to make a difference, not just in the lives of these survivors, but for the, the person coming behind them. Most of my clients will say, I was really scared to come forward. And I, if it was just about me, I couldn't have done it. I, I didn't have the courage to do it for me. 
but when I thought about what he might do to another girl, maybe younger than me, who doesn't have enough strength, I didn't want anybody else getting hurt. So for that girl, for the person I don't know, I found the courage. And I think that's so powerful. And so we all, that's why I think we need to create institutional change. It's not just about an individual client. It seems like one of the, almost as if you, when you, you know, you take an oath and you're sworn in as a lawyer, but if there could or should be one for one that, that handles uh, claims involving an injury or involving like an assault, there's really that deeper uh, feeling of, of creating that change in the community and making it safer for the future. And some of the most landmark cases, the ones that that people do get awards for and get recognition for are the ones where they have made a community safer and they prevented these things from occurring in the future. And that's, I think that's absolutely fantastic. Well, isn't that why we became lawyer? I mean, I feel like that's why I became a lawyer to make a difference, to help people. Some people want to be on billboards and look popular. <laughs> so again, going back to, this is all you have immersed your career into yeah. going back you know, more than a decade. And, you know, I've had conversations with attorneys where they say they do sexual assault litigation work, yet they're meeting with a car accident client, you know, in 15 minutes after I leave the building. So there is quite a fundamental difference there. Yeah, I understand that. Unfortunately, I do not want to see myself up on a billboard when I'm driving to work in the morning. Uh, it's a, uh, that's another thing that's different about uh, my firm is if you notice, and I, you know, you do notice cause you do our website, but, uh, we've made a conscious decision not to post, uh, how much we settle our cases for. And I can tell you, we have some largest settlements in California, but I did not want to post that or in the world for that matter. But we didn't want to post that because it wasn't about that. It's about justice and the number of lives we've changed. And that's how we measure success here at this firm is, did we make a difference for our clients in our community or the greater community? Yeah, that's what that's what makes me feel like I'm making this world a safer place for my daughter because I have a daughter and the statistics for when she goes to college are one in four, one in four. I, I'll be, I was going to say, I'll be damned. I don't know if that's a piece, I'm not allowed to say it. Am I going to be Leave no. me out later. Um, but <laughs> I'm not letting Naya be one of those statistics. If I have anything in my power to make it safer for her, for my niece, for my friends' kids, for all of the children I love that are, are here in this community, and I can do something about it, I'm going to do something about it. And I hope that she takes that. My, you know, my, uh, you know, my daughter and she, a lot of times, unfortunately being a working mom, she has said to me a couple of times, mommy, why can't you pick me up from school? Mommy, why don't you do this? Mommy, why are you always working? You know, you're always helping people, mommy, but what about me? And, and I try as much to spend time with her too, but I explained to her the reason why mommy can't pick you up from school. Like the other moms who, I mean, who aren't working is mommy stands for something. And I hope when you grow up that you learn from that and you choose to stand for something and you try to make the world a better place. And that's all I can ask for as a mom, I think, is to create a good human who is doing good in the world. And so I try to lead by example. And I hope when she's older, she understands that uh, even though I wasn't at the bake sale and I didn't show up to, you know, 
all the reading times at school, it wasn't because I didn't love her. It's because I wanted to show her something. That's awesome. Wow, that really resonates with me. I have a 14-year-old daughter about to start high school, and the spending time part, you know, she's starting to get pretty independent, so she's got a lot of things going on, and, you know, you brought up bake sale, and I do most of the baking for her. I don't <laughs> attend the actual bake sale, but I bake for her. That's um, but edu just trying to get that communication down where she feels comfortable telling me what's going on, and her mom, obviously, so that if there is something that's happening you know, whether bullying or some kind of abuse um, from a, a friend or a boyfriend or whatever, that she's comfortable, like you said, for us trying to raise a good human that understands that, you know, you, you don't have to go through all this alone. I think that's, yeah, that's a really important point. And the other thing is it's important to have these conversations with your kids early. You know, I think as early as fifth grade, when they start getting uh, education about their bodies and puberty and all of that stuff, you know, tier it as, you know, it needs to be age specific. But as they grow older, you really need to have a conversation about healthy relationships and talking about what are boundaries for someone, you know, no one should touch your body. No one should get into your personal space without your permission. And what does it look like to have a healthy relationship with a teacher? You know, things like you shouldn't be in the teacher's car after school without your parents' permission, or the teacher shouldn't buy you presents. You shouldn't be in a classroom with a teacher, you know, by yourself, closed doors after school. Any teacher who talks to you about their personal dating relationship or tells you, hey, I think you're really mature and I want to be your confidant, let's keep secrets. These are all conversations that parents need to have with their children. Um, unfortunately, most of the schools aren't teaching this. Uh, we're working here in San Diego to make sure that that is something that is generic, that is taught to all children. In the meantime, parents need to have those conversations with their kids. No texting with your teacher about personal stuff inappropriate and telling kids grooming. Most kids don't know what that word means. There's a lot of teachers that I've deposed that don't know what the word grooming means, but grooming is the process by which teachers, you know, or adults or coaches or whoever, they wear down the barriers, the boundaries for kids. And they groom them into first, it's maybe an accidental, you know, it's asking something inappropriate, an accidental pat on the butt, uh, you know, this or that. And it's a slippery slope because then one day my kids will always say, or, you know, my clients, I don't know how this happened. And next thing you know, they're engaging and, you know, they're not engaging, they're being abused by someone they trusted. And that's another thing kids need to understand is that the person that is going to potentially abuse them is going to be someone they know, someone they care about, and someone they thought would never hurt them. Being able to, one, recognize it and have that little, you know, siren go off in your head and say, okay, now that we told you what the red flags are, the warning signs, I need you to feel comfortable to come and talk to me. Mom and dad aren't going to be mad at you if you share this with me, or if this person told you they're going to kill me or hurt me, if you say anything, I want you to know I'm okay. I can take care of myself. You come tell me because I'm going to protect you. Kids try to protect their parents. They think somehow, you know, they're, they're going to save them, but they're children, they're children and they need help. And as soon as something like that happens, I mean, you call the cops, you 
talk to the school, you call someone like me, because predators are never one hit wonders. Never. I've yet to find a predator that only had one victim. They abuse and abuse and abuse until they get caught. And the longer they don't get caught, the more bold they get in their uh, victimization. What are some things that you might know with your 15 years experience in this type of, of litigation for parents who find out that their child is or has been assaulted, what is something that they may overlook as they're navigating the search and the the process for finding someone who can help? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I often think, God, if it were my child, what would I want to know or what I've wanted to know? One of the things is if it happens at a school, a lot of times what's going to happen is if the school finds out somehow, then you're going to get the principal or the vice principal who wants to interview the child and they're going to call the police and the police want to talk to them. And then maybe CPS wants to talk to them. And we know that the more time a survivor tells their story, it causes trauma. And kids might think, God, this is my fault. What did I do? They can close up. They may not give all the details. So I think it's really important. And here in San Diego, we have Chadwick. Uh, that's connected to Radies Children's Hospital, which is where a uh, sur uh, minor survivor of abuse goes when a report is made. There they have trained forensic psychologists who interview the child. I would rather have my child interviewed by a forensic psychologist in a safe place and they get dolls out and they say, you know, show me on the dolly, you know, what happened, or they do it in a way that's not traumatizing the child. Hi, do you want to draw a picture? Draw me a picture about what happened. That is a less traumatic way to be asked about what happened than in the principal's office where a kid feels like they're in trouble and they're being grilled about because the parents and or the adults are also panicking right now. And a lot of times they have no training in how to question a child sex abuse victim. So I would grab my child and be like, we're going to Chadwick and their forensic, psych forensic psychologist is going to ask my child what happened. The second thing I think that's really important is therapy, therapy, therapy. That kid needs tools to figure out how to process their trauma. Depending on the age of the child, they may not know how to verbalize how they're feeling. They may have anger issues. They may, you know, start wetting the bed. They might start doing things that parents are going, oh my God, I don't know what to do and to help my child. Get them professionals that can help them get tools to process the trauma. And the last thing I would say is mom and dad, you need help. That is so much. And it, of all the things that could happen in the world, I think everyone's had a sick child at some point. And when your child is sick and not okay, your world is not okay. Now imagine your child is sexually abused. The amount of anger and fear and heartache that a parent goes through, it's devastating. It is so devastating to a family. The parents still have to remember they have to take care of their child. And if they don't fill their cup, if they don't heal themselves or talk to somebody so they can process their trauma, they're, they're not going to have anything to give their kiddo. So, I, and parents always feel too like it's their fault. You know, how did I not see it? How did I not, I should have done something if I would have done this differently. That is all part of the, the grieving and healing process too. And so it's really important for mom and dad to get help.
too. And, and the therapist may say, hey, okay, you get your individualized therapy and the kid's going to get their individualized, but then maybe as a family to do family therapy as well. I leave it to the professionals yeah. to see what's needed, but um, get help. You really need help and support during those times because it's so hard for a family. 100%. That point is paramount, actually, because the parents feel violated too, right? Their, their job is to protect their child and, and you know that protective nature and service that they provide for their kid was, was stolen, right? It was taken away from them. It was out of their control. And now they feel terrible about letting their kid down. And, you know, if, if I, I can only imagine how, how parents feel when, when something like this happens. So I'm glad you, you brought that up because I was going to say therapy has to go for more than just the, the child. 100%. I appreciate you sharing that. So Jessica, going back to something that you brought up at the, or Landon did at the beginning of the show about psychiatric ward incidents and assaults. I'm kind of interested how prevalent is that? And, and, you know, it might not even be a psychiatric ward. It might be just a therapy facility where somebody goes in and then is in a vulnerable moment or setting and is taken advantage of. In your experience, is this become, is this on the rise? Is this something we're seeing more of? Is there something that the the survivors of these incidents have to do differently than some of the other sexual assaults that you have seen or, or handle? Yeah, unfortunately, it is an unknown danger that most people are not aware of. And the thing that people aren't aware is that psychiatric facilities across the country are co-ed. Co-ed, that means men and women are housed together in locked psychiatric facilities, men, vulnerable, mentally ill people who are then placed on heavy you know, medication are housed together. We don't even have co-ed jails, but we have co-ed psychiatric facilities. I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. And so as we got into these types of cases, we started looking at the statistics and looking at... Uh, this is actually a global problem. Uh, it happens in the UK too, but the UK actually just changed uh, their the way that they do it and segregated based on gender. I hope the United States will catch up uh, because we saw that there was a 40% reduction in sexual assaults if we segregated based on gender. So generally what we saw happen is that within 24 hours, uh, you know, imagine you're having the worst day of your life. So much so that you, you know, in, in most of my cases that my client try to take their own life or are so depressed, manic, severe postpartum depression. I mean, there's all different kinds of reasons that um, someone is placed in a locked psychiatric facility. In California, the term is uh, you get placed on what's called a 5150 hold. That means you are found to be a danger to yourself or to others and have to be placed on a mandatory 72-hour hold in a, in a locked facility. I mean, you can't leave. And usually once you get there, they dope you up with medication. And so you become sedated. And we found that within 24 hours, uh, there is a high percentage of people who are sexually assaulted by uh, other patients there. Sometimes it's by the employees themselves. Uh, 
But if you're going to, when predators are looking for um, someone to assault, they look for the vulnerable people. It's always a vulnerable person. And so talk about a more vulnerable population than people who are mentally ill and incapacitated. And so it's just such an atrocity because I'm sure all of us know someone that we love or care about who, who's mentally ill and has had to, to then take that bad situation and sexually assault them on top of it. Now you've spiraled them out. You spiraled them out into a place that is so hard to recover from. So my firm, uh, we just finished a case. We have a number of, of other cases. We are taking on uh, this project because we just don't think it's okay. We want uh, psych wards to become segregated for them to do other things to keep survivors safe. Uh, there are other uh, different types of ways to from you know closing the bedroom doors and requiring that uh, survivors stay out in the common areas during the day. There, there are so many different steps. So if you have a loved one or you know someone in a psych ward or your family member, someone, or you ever have to go to a psych ward, know that they are co-ed. Have your family checking up on you. Require, especially if you have a history of being sexually abused, you're even more vulnerable. So you need to make sure that they label you as a high sexual assault risk alert so that you're getting a one-to-one, -one, meaning one staff is watching one person, one patient. There are things that can be put in place to protect you, but if your family or you don't know to ask for those things, you're really just kind of a sitting duck. And I, I don't want to see anyone else uh, get abused. So, and a lot of people think, well, I was in a psych ward. No one's going to believe me. I believe you. And I know the stats. My office knows the stats. We're definitely here to help. Wow, really powerful stuff. Uh, and thank you on behalf of all the listeners. Thank you for everything that you do for all the survivors out there. Thank you. We need more lawyers like that um, out there. I want to thank Jessica for joining us today. And if you want to find out more about Jessica and the Pride Law Firm, you can follow them on Instagram at the Pride Law Firm or visit their website at survivorlawyer.com. I want to thank everyone out there for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Cases for Causes and you'd like to support us, pound that subscribe button, share it with others, post it on social media, leave us a review. We'd love to hear how you think we're doing. And to catch all the latest from Obu Interactive, you can follow us on Instagram at Obu Interactive or visit us on the web at obuinteractive.com. And until next time, work passionately, live peacefully.